with the first pick in the 2023 NFL Draft, the Carolina Panthers select Bryce Young, quarterback, Alabama. Consensus quarterback one in this draft class, Bryce Young at Alabama, is the future of the franchise. This is the guy the front office felt confident in and overall really happy with the selection. I'm happy with the pick as well. Uh, draft night on Thursday was pretty special. It was pretty crazy. We were able to watch uh, Bryce get selected in Bank of America Stadium, which uh, I'm not sure not sure if you saw the report, but uh, there might be a name change to the stadium coming soon. Bank of America I, didn't. I know you're an advocate of uh, Bojangles yeah, Stadium. Bring back which, Bojangles. Uh, yeah, we already have Bojangles Coliseum. Let's bring in Bojangles Stadium. But yeah, it was, it was a nice, uh, nice draft night, and it was a crazy draft night. There were, uh, I believe, six trades on Thursday. Uh, the biggest one being obviously Houston trading back up to three after picking it two. But we'll uh, we'll dig into that a little bit later. Absolutely. I definitely, uh, and this is going more with the Panthers at the moment, but I think we've reached a little bit on Mingo um, in the second. But the more I look at it, he's more athletic than recent Ole Miss alums uh, and A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf. And they both won in the second round back in 2019. So who knows? Maybe we hit a little bit of gold luck or gold rush. There we go. Yeah, it's kind of crazy if you look back at recent uh, Ole Miss receivers like DK, like you mentioned, AJ Brown, even Elijah Moore had a pretty decent rookie year. He kind of, kind of teetered off a bit last year, but maybe we'll see him have more success now that Zach Wilson isn't throwing him the ball. Very true. Now this is the pick is in. I'm Stephen Patton, and I'm joined by my co-host Jacob Laquire. Last week we covered mock drafts. I had Young at one, Skaronski at eleven, Broderick Jones at fourteen, and Brissy at 29 i correctly mocked 27 players in the first round solid numbers uh but i was impressed with a few of the picks you actually hit on yeah i appreciate that and uh i'm disappointed that you had more players mocked uh correctly than i did but i did get a couple special ones in Bijan, which i think uh if we look at what the falcons have been doing that's that was kind of an obvious one uh i liked getting lucas van nesta green bay correct and my favorite was Jackson Smith and Jigba being the first receiver taken by Seattle. Yeah, no, you you hit uh, the head on the nail with uh, Jackson Smith, but Lucas Van Ness, like you said on the podcast last week, he's like Rashawn Gary 2.0, uh, just a seamless fit there. Um, to be honest, though, from the Seahawks' point of view, I didn't see them taking Devin Witherspoon, but Schneider and Carroll have uh, changed how they allocate their draft resources in recent years, and it's it's refreshing to see. Now, our focus this week is going to be on big boards. Do you want to touch on a few of the differences between mock drafts and big boards? Uh, for sure. I mean, around this time every year, it seems there's always a big uh, fuss about why isn't positional value taken into account on big boards. I think it's pretty simple. Big boards, uh, the way I see it and the way I, a lot of the independent evaluators and media see it is just a board of the best football players. I mean, Bijan Robin, Robinson obviously is a running back which in today's NFL isn't as valuable as, say, a quarterback. But he's a better football player than C.J. Stroud. Than I think he's better than Bryce Young and certainly the rest of the QBs in this class. And then when we take in positional value to account, that's where mock drafts come in. Because if we were taking the best player at one, the Panthers, let's say, it would have been Will Anderson Jr. or Jalen Carter. But we obviously needed a Absolutely. quarterback, right? 
And so that's where the positional value is taken into account for team needs and especially teams at the top. That's where, why you're going to see a lot of QBs go early, which we did see uh, this this year. There, there was definitely a run on quarterbacks, and I agree mock drafts factor in position surplus and team needs where big boards are more designed to tell you which prospects are projected to be, like you said, representative of the best football players. Uh, for example, you kind of already alluded to it, but like B. John Robinson, uh, his uh, SIS grade was 7.0, but his expected draft position prior to the draft was 12.6. Where if we compare a guy like Anthony Richardson, who had a much lower grade with a 6.6 and a higher expected draft position of 10.9, exactly like you said, it factors in the positional value, the importance of quarterback, but what we know is, is right now, Bijan is more than likely going to be a, a, a top running back, probability-wise, than we're going to see Anthony Richardson hit. And because of that, you're going to see Bijan ranked ahead of a guy like Anthony Richardson on a big board. Um, even though you should be using your high draft capital on premium positions, which gives you more surplus under the current CBA. Couldn't agree more. Now... Hitting on a quarterback, you got to reel this in about the probabilities. It in the first round is a lot easier said than done. Since 2018, roughly a third of the quarterbacks have been busts. I think we can deem Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, Dwayne Haskins, and Zach Wilson as kind of guys who didn't hit. Third of the jury, third of the guys drafted, the jury's still out on with Daniel Jones, Tua Tuga Ilova, can't talk right now, Jordan Love, Trey Lance. Uh, Justin Fields and Mac Jones. And I guess you could throw in Kenny Pickett from last year, but again, he's had one year under his belt. And so when we get to kind of the the guys that have hit, we're down to about 33% of dudes with Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, and Trevor Lawrence. Guys that have already hit that second big extension or projected to get paid. And so this is where it goes back to the Falcons got a quote unquote safer pick and he has a higher floor as a football player but because of the position surplus, he's kind of capped out compared to taking a guy like a Bryce Young, taking a guy like a CJ Stroud. I agree. I think uh, Jason Fitzgerald on the Over the Cap podcast said it best for Bijan to hit in terms of uh, position surplus when we're looking at contracts. He's got to be among the top five or 10 running backs in the league, whereas QBs, they don't really have to be top five or 10, even though we, we would like them to. That's why we take them that high. And I agree. It's all about getting that QB early. And this draft reflected that with uh, three three QBs going in the top four picks. And I hope the one that we picked will be among that upper echelon you mentioned with Josh Allen, Lamar, and uh, Joe Burrow. And uh, QBs are gener generally regarded as good value picks, going back to uh, the premium and the surplus, no matter how their careers turn out. But other positions can be deemed as steals and reaches when we weigh them against consensus draft boards. And I was wondering, who are some of the guys that you saw as steals in this draft uh, in that regard? So touching on, you brought up Jason Fitzgerald and him and uh, Brad Spielberger uh, put together a phenomenal chart for pick values. Uh, designed for trades. And I was able to kind of take that and calculate the difference between Jack, and Jack Lichtenstein's consensus draft board and the pick the prospect was selected. Um, this factored in the value lost in a potential trade-up for a pick. And to no surprise, two of the bigger steals in the top 10 were Joey Porter Jr. and Darnell Washington by the Pittsburgh Steelers. I can kind of see why Washington ended up falling. 
I mean, there was a lot of hype made about his size and athletic ability, but a lot of his tape was him just being uh, kind of an XT or a, a sixth offensive lineman for Georgia this past year. Uh, he, that's not to say he's uh, he was bad at it. He was an excellent blocker, easily the best blocking tight end in this draft, but he didn't really produce as much as a receiver on a team that didn't really have top-end premium receiving threats outside of Brock Bowers. Now, Joey Porter Jr., I think, fell for bizarre reasons. I think teams may not have liked his testing numbers, uh, specifically the speed, like in his 40. But his tape... Yeah, he wasn't as fast as uh, I think people expect him to be, which, I mean, it happens. Yeah, I mean, it does happen. But I think his tape uh, reflected the ability to stay with faster receivers. And uh, luckily for us, we got that Pittsburgh-Joey Porter uh, reunion that we mentioned last episode. What's interesting is people were mocking, ourselves included, Joey Porter to Pittsburgh at 17, and little did we know he would fall to him at pick 32. So it's a lot of these prospects we see that, like, we knew the teams were in love with them leading up to the draft, but they didn't take them with that first overall selection. Another uh, good point to make is a lot of people had the Titans trading up with the Cardinals. They had the Austin Ford connection. Uh, they had a need for a quarterback, and everybody thought it would be for pick three, not pick 33 and so every year uh this kind of sidetracks into our next thing that was just the side tangent but every team kind of steals pages out of the playbook from the team that won the super bowl in this case the giants steelers and packers i think are attempting to copy the chief's usage of 12 personnel i mean the nfl is a copycat league everybody says it and when teams see a successful formula they're gonna try to replicate it now, you're right. The Chiefs did run a lot of 12 personnel, which is one running back and two tight ends during their playoff run. I think it might have been out of uh, necessity because they didn't have a lot of great real receiving threats on the outside in their wide receiver room. But yeah, like you said, uh, Giants getting Waller and uh, the other teams taking tight ends early might reflect that. So using personnel numbers from Joseph Hefner's shiny app on NFL formations, 29% of the plays the Chiefs ran were out of 12 personnel. Uh, side note, they kind of ran 11% of their plays from 13%, uh, 13 personnel. Uh, they had a passing rate of 67% in 12 personnel, which is pretty crazy for a heavier personnel group. And then of the three copycats mentioned prior, only the Packers ran 12 personnel more at a 31% clip. Uh, their pass rate, unlike the Chiefs 67%, was a measly 43% pass rate. Now, they just added Musgrave and Kraft in the draft. What are your thoughts on those guys and what they bring to Green Bay? I like what uh, Green Bay did early in the draft following the Van Ness pick. Uh, it might have been a spiteful move to Aaron Rodgers because, you know, they never added weapons for him early. But they added three weapons for Jordan Love on day two for him to throw to next season. I think uh, Tucker Craft and Luke Musgrave are both really high upside athletes that can stretch the field and be mismatches for defense. And I think uh, Kraft especially can improve as a blocker. Meanwhile, Jaden Reed, he's a bit of a smaller receiver, but he has excellent body control and can win the ball anywhere on the field and use his speed to make home run plays. And I think he's also going to end up returning kicks and punts for them because he did that at a high level too at uh, Michigan State last year. And I think this could be signaling a new philosophy towards using high capital, new uh, Green Bay philosophy, I should say, towards using high draft capital to give their QB weapons. And I think uh, regardless of if this was their thought at all, 
that skill position, uh, it was kind of weak. So adding weapons was a necessity. They did it early. And that was, it was refreshing to see. Absolutely. Yeah, they added uh, Christian Watson in the second last year. Uh, they they turned this year and immediately started putting weapons around the quarterback. And it seems to, to be the focus outside of the first round. Invest all your first round picks in defensive stars and then start turning your attention to other needs. And I will say, now, uh, before you get to the next point, I will say I did like them staying with their uh, with their identity in the first round and picking Van Ness. Just because uh, they're having a new QB and they don't know what the future holds doesn't mean that they were going to abandon what they did in taking really high upside players. And I appreciate that they stayed true to that. Oh, yeah. No, there, there were a couple teams that stayed true to their identity, true to their draft philosophy. And we'll, we'll definitely touch on more of those teams as we go along. Now, we've, we've alluded to the Waller trade and we talked about Washington being drafted and the Giants and Steelers were the, kind of the other two teams mentioned when we've been talking about 12 personnel the giants with waller compare him with bellinger their fourth round pick last year and you have a really good one-two combo from a passing standpoint from a rushing standpoint the steelers like we talked about just drafted washington and two years ago they took pat Fryermuth in the second so when you're looking at these things and we start turning our eyes to how they use 12 personnel the giants use that at about 18 percent rate the Steelers at a 22% rate. And when we were talking about the Chiefs earlier, they were close to the 29% and they ran 13 personnel at 11%. So when you look at 40% of the plays, they at least had two or more tight ends on the field, which is in crazy to think about. And so the pass rate out of those for both the Giants and the Steelers were really high last year. You had a 55% pass rate from the Giants and a 57% um, pass rate from the Steelers. And I think those play callers in Kafka and um, Matt oh, Canada I'm blanking out on the Steelers. There we go, Matt Canada. Those guys, they're, they're newer minds. They have college backgrounds. At least Matt Canada does. And it's the ability to kind of adapt and evolve as the NFL goes. And that's where we're seeing that evolution here. Do you think with offenses going a little bit heavier, that's going to affect some of these smaller defenses and uh, that have invested in more nickel packages? I think it might, especially when we're looking at somebody like Darnell Washington, who can block like an offensive tackle. I think having somebody on the field like that, that can also be a threat in the passing game once he develops a bit more is going to uh, going to help teams out like that. And I, I think we see, like you mentioned, the Giants and the Packers, maybe doing the same thing, trying to take advantage of teams that are trying to go fat, like maybe smaller, faster hybrid defenders and get some big guys in there that can block and uh, be able to catch on high point and stuff like that. So we got off on this whole tangent. Uh, we were talking about kind of steals in the draft and that led us to kind of some of this 12 personnel talk and, and some teams we thought stayed true to their identity. What I want to look at now with where I was taking into account the Jason Fitzgerald chart with kind of these steals and reaches is that 50% of the thing, the, the positions that we would deem at 50% of the top 10 steals, we would deem as uh, being non-premium positions. They included guys like Bijan, Brian Branch, Drew Sanders, and three of the top 10 reaches included the three quarterbacks we saw in the top five, Young, Stroud, and Richardson. Uh, young because of the big draft that the Panthers made to move up to one uh, Stroud because he was a little bit lower in consensus boards and the same with Richardson. And so when you're going to invest such high capital there, there there's a higher risk 
with that. And you aren't going to be able to get the reward at the end if that risk isn't higher. So when you see guys like Robinson and Branch and Sanders fall, teams understand position positional value. What they're doing is, is they're waiting for those players to fall to where it's worth it for them. Yeah, I can see that. And uh, as far as three of the QBs being considered reaches, uh, top 10 reaches rather, when looking at the consensus board, I can see uh, like in, in terms of like looking at it as a reach just by the numbers, I can see that. But I think the risk is worth it with QBs. I mean, that's why they're taking that high. Uh, if they hit, it's going to be worth whatever you gave up to get them. And in regards to Young and Stroud, for me, they were both ten, top 10 players. So I wouldn't necessarily just generalize it as a reach. But I could see Richardson being called a reach. But, I mean, his athletic upside is alluring. And I think it, uh, I think it's very telling that Jim Irsay, the owner of the Colts, said that had Richardson gone at three, they would have taken Levis there which gives more credence to uh, teams wanting to take QBs high when they need them. And as far as steals go, it is interesting that a lot of non-premium positions were classified as steals. I know kind of the current discourse, and this has been going on for half a decade now, maybe more, is that running backs, linebackers, and safeties, they're just not valuable enough to draft early on. But if the football player is good, teams are going to want to take them. I think that's what we saw with uh, Bijan Robinson, Drew Sanders, Brian Branch, and somebody we haven't mentioned yet, and Jameer Gibbs. Yeah, no, I, I agree to your point. It can be hasty to say uh, you've reached for a quarterback, but it goes back to the point earlier that when you take a quarterback in the first round, it's not even like a coin flip. It's not like a 50-50 hit rate. You're, you're really looking at like a like a 33 uh, percent hit rate, and when you're looking at that, it, it just diminishes the, the outcome uh, the probability of a good outcome. And so exactly like you said, when there are good football players available, sometimes teams are just going to take what's certain and not go with the uncertainty. Um, so moving forward, um, I did want to kind of touch on um, where we were talking about the steals where about 50% of the steals were non-premium. 20% uh, of the top 10 reaches were on non-premium positions. And the only two reaches that were like really deemed kind of like poor was the Jake Moody kicker selection at 99 and the Texans their reach for juice scrugs in the second and both of those I think were head scratchers and we'll see if they pay out uh or pan out I, I just I don't see it yeah they were uh it's always interesting to see when the first kicker goes and uh 99 was definitely a bit early but hey if they need a kicker then if, if they're convicted on it as our general manager likes to say and I guess they'll go up and get them and Juice Scruggs wasn't a player that I uh, personally evaluated, but I saw that people liked him. He had some feistiness to him, but uh, I don't know if uh, he was round two, right? I'm not sure if round two was uh, yeah. the where the consensus board had him, and it obviously wasn't if he was considered a reach. And in general, oh, go ahead. I mean, the, the consensus board had him as a fifth round pick. Yeah, that's uh, that reminds me of the Cole Strange pick last year. I think he was around the 100th player or something like that. And we know Belichick, he had to uh, get his guy in the mid to late 20s. But we'll get on, we'll touch on this later, but I think Belichick had a very good draft this year. But uh, getting back to, oh, absolutely. to reaches and steals, I think uh, 
I think the way we grade drafts is kind of unfortunate when we're looking at uh, reaches and steals. That's just kind of how uh, narratives are pushed around. I think what we should really, because we haven't seen these people play yet, you know, and the consensus board might have them in one spot, but who knows, Juice Scruggs could be a top three interior O-lineman this year, and then he wouldn't really be a reach. And so I think we need to grade drafts and by kind of the draft process and kind of like based on trades uh, and stuff of that matter. And in terms of the draft process, I don't think anyone other, uh, had a better draft than the Cardinals. I mean, you look at what they were able to do. They started at pick three and they were able to amass a huge return and take the player that they would have taken at three at pick six. They also now oh, go ahead. Now to that point with the 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 pick three, depending on which trade chart you look at, they they extracted no less than the thirty six pick according to Jimmy Johnson. Um, but if you start looking at either Chase Stewart's chart, uh, over the Caps chart, uh, or that that Fitzgerald Spielberg, or even PFF, they all kind of have it around the tenth overall pick that was given up. So in essence, Houston gave up what the third pick was worth, and then an additional. Uh, 10th overall pick on top of that, which is insane to think about value wise. And the Cardinals got that. Yeah, it was crazy, uh, especially when uh, the news came out that the future pick, the 2024 uh, first was Houston's pick and not the pick that they got from Cleveland. And I'm not trying to uh, to be down on Houston or anything, but I think it's going to be a top five pick next year. And so you're giving up uh, a very high premium pick for a team that one might look for a QB and two, the Cardinals aren't going to be very good next year. I don't think they could always turn it around, but I don't think they're going to be very good. So they very well could be looking at two top five picks next year in a draft where they could either take a QB or demand an even bigger ransom for a top pick than what we paid to Chicago because the QB prospects are supposed to be that much better. It's, it's just crazy to me. It is. It is. And I, I love the process on that. We just saw it work out for the Detroit Lions and the Seattle Seahawks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you move a quarterback or in this case, it, they didn't move a pick for a quarterback, but you have people coming out and defending the Texans camp saying, well, um, we, we took CJ Stroud to the kind of hedge our bets. And then we took Will Anderson. But like the way we thought about it is Will Anderson at two, Stroud at three, which doesn't make a lot of sense. I've seen a lot of different uh, back and forth on that. But when you're looking at that, they're following that blueprint of, okay, let's accumulate first round picks. And next year's quarterback draft class, if you're not happy with Kyler after this year, it wouldn't be hard to trade him and go after a Caleb Williams, Drake May situation, which could be interesting leading up the next year's draft. Yeah, I'm sure a team that misses out on those two guys uh, would love to have Kyler if they can make the money work and stuff like that. So you could even trade Kyler and get another high pick. And I believe the Cardinals not only have two firsts, but I think they have multiple seconds and thirds next year as well. And so I think they have like three thirds next year. Yeah, I think um, I may be wrong. I think they killed the draft process. And uh, in regards to their picks, I mean, I really like their picks. Uh, they grabbed my favorite day two player in BJ Ojolari, which was a position that they desperately needed. And it's a premium position. And so I thought that they just, I think they just killed it. And then another, oh, go ahead. 
Oh, you're good. You're good. They didn't crack the top three for me in terms of the best drafts. And it's because of the whole, we've talked about this teams in the past have accumulated picks. Mm -hmm. We just watched the Detroit Lions do it and they blew it on a running back and an inside linebacker in the first round. Two guys that they could have, two picks that they could have used to either move up and get their quarterback of the future, uh, take more premium positions, either on the uh, defensive side of the ball, like the edge. And because of that, I'm going to, the jury's still out on the Cardinals. You can amass all the capital you want. You got to make the picks when it's time to make the picks and actually hit on those guys. That's fair. Um, so the team that I want to start with that had the best process has stuck to their guns no matter what, and they were just to a Super Bowl. Like if a team was to justify, hey, we're taking a couple guys so that we maximize our Super Bowl like championship window, it'd be a team like the Eagles. And instead, they keep going back to the defensive line. Jalen Carter, Nolan Smith. Then they add on day two, Ringo. They use some day three capital. Literally just trade a fifth round pick, swap sevens, and they have DeAndre Swift and Rashad Penny as their running backs this year. And it's it's pennies on the dimes. They aren't investing high premium draft capital on these guys. They aren't shelling out these massive contracts for running backs. They're doing it smart and efficiently top to bottom. Yeah, the Philadelphia Crimson Bulldogs, right? Alabama Alabama <laughs> players on offense and Georgia players on defense. Uh, I mean, clearly it's working, and we'll see uh, some of their reinforcements that didn't really play much last year, and Jordan Davis and N'Kobe Dean step into bigger roles this year and hopefully keep that defense going. Uh, for me, the next team I had in terms of uh, a great draft and a great draft process were the Colts. Uh, I know I said Anthony Richardson might have been a high pick, even though there was obviously a lot of interest in him and uh, teams were going to take him high if he didn't go four, and it's a quarterback. So I'm cool with that pick. I think they were able to add a ton of value later in the draft. They're able to add Julius Brintz, who was my 16th player, Josh Downs, who was my 29th player, uh, Adedemiwa Adabare, who was my 50th player, and Jalen. Good pronunciation. Thank you. I, I, I hesitated at first, but I think I got it. If not, I apologize if I mispronounce your name. Uh, I'm sure you're not listening to this, but if you are, I apologize. I, the, the amount of players and people's names I've already butchered on this episode, you're, you're, you're killing it, man. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was one I had to focus up on. And then they also got Jalen Jones, uh, I believe, in the seventh round, and I had him as my 89th player, the corner out of uh, Texas A&M. All of those. The Colts focused a lot on high-rise players, like guys that were just crazy athletes. Yeah, and I think uh, I think even with consensus boards, I think they got all of those guys at a uh, a pick pick surplus or deficit, however you want to look at it. They uh, they got them way later than they were expected to go. I think that was just a great process. Plus, they were all positions uh, that they needed, premium positions, I should say, that they needed. They got Anthony Richardson, a receiver. They got some corners and they got a good D lineman. No, they did. The Colts definitely reloaded this season. Was uh, there anybody else in the AFC that kind of impressed you? Oh yeah. Uh, the Patriots. I alluded to that before. Uh, Steven knows. And I kind of, uh, I kind of don't like the way Belichick drafts. He doesn't, especially his first round picks, but I think he did very well this year. He was able to trade back and land Christian Gonzalez, he was a top, uh, let me look on my, yeah, he was the sixth player on my board. He was able to get him at 17 uh, with trading back. You know, he he could have gone earlier, but uh, traded back with the Steelers, I believe, in the Broderick Jones trade. 
And then uh, I think it was like a fourth round pick he accumulated, which is good. I mean, you moved back two spots and you still get your exactly. guy. Exactly. And then they got Keon White, uh, I believe, in the second round. Was that was their first pick in the second round? Who's going to be a good uh, versatile D lineman for him, which is another Belichick pick. And I really, I just, I really appreciated him not taking a guy that might have been sixty or seventy spots down the consensus board in the first round. I think that was very good, uh, very good draft for him. Some people talk that he reached for a kicker and a punter on day three, but like day three is meant to kind of fill positions of need, take guys with high upside. And I mean, the punter, there were a lot of reports that I think it was Ballinger, Badinger, Um, I think Badinger, um, that he has a cannon for a leg. He killed senior day. This is, he's just a great guy to love. And I think he's going to be able to flip field positions uh, and that's something that Bill Belichick loves on specialty. I agree. Uh, kicker and punter are sneaky, important uh, spots on your roster. And I know you've looked at a lot of uh, EPA stuff in regards to special teams. And if you can get a, a starter at one or both of those positions on day three, it's definitely worth it. I think teams need to invest more capital in kickers and punters uh, on day three. And just uh, especially yeah. with all the all the field goal misses you see and just the blunders and stuff like having having great guys at those positions really can be a needle mover in pivotal situations now moving on from the afc i'm going to go all the way from the east coast to the west coast and i want to harp on what is going on in seattle i kind of already praised them earlier about kind of changing their approach to the draft recently but john snyder and p carroll man I mean, you grab arguably the best cornerback and wide receiver in this draft class. Uh, then you add Derek Hall in the second, who was a guy that you were pretty big on, explosive hands. Um, and then they take interior O-linemen and, and on day three. And I know you and I have had in-depth discussions about this, but taking like some of those non-premium positions in day three and just throwing a bunch of darts at it, whether it's like an interior O-line, whether it's like linebackers, if you hit on those guys, it's pennies on the dollar. You didn't invest all this capital and you're getting starters. And to me, Seattle's doing exactly that. They have their tackles of the future. They're just trying to bolster the interior of the O-line uh, with the, the the rest of their day three picks. Yeah, I mean, I think they had a good draft as well. Uh, Witherspoon was my best corner. And I think this was one of the highest corners that uh, the schneider Carroll tandem has drafted. And uh, I think they did a good job in getting a dog at corner. And JSN, like you said, uh, he could very well end up being the best receiver in this class. And they got him at 20. I know a lot of people were thinking he might go at 9 or I guess 10 after the trade to the Bears or to the Titans at 11. But uh, they stuck to their guns and got him at 20. And I think that was really good. And I agree. Once you're on day three or once you're really past certain blocks of players on your board, you just need to take the best player on your board and just put them on the team, have them battle it out and uh, contribute in a good way in year one and more, more specifically in years two, three, four. And uh, I know uh, you might not like their Zach Charbonnet pick, I believe in the third round, but he was my third running back. He was my 37th player. I, I think they killed that pick. I, I, and here's the thing. I, I'm not the biggest fan. Like this, this is just something that Pete Carroll and John Snyder love. They love taking running backs mm-hmm. early and often. They took Penny with a first round pick. They took Walker with a second last year. Um, they used, I believe, was it a second or third on? I think third for Charbonnet this year. Yeah. So, and, and Charbonnet is good. Like don't, don't 
that this isn't a knock on him. It's just it's using higher capital on that position in general, which if you're going to take a running back, um, I'd rather it be in the second, third round than a first round pick. So I definitely, definitely an improvement from years past uh, from the, the Seahawks front. Office. Hey, you can't slender uh, Kenneth Walker. Didn't he help you in fantasy this year? I, I traded a, a lot mm-hmm. for him in our uh, one keeper league, but I think uh, there's somebody else uh, or a couple actually teams that you have that you think believe killed this draft. And I'm interested to hear kind of those, about those two teams. Yeah. Uh, sticking to the draft process. I think the Jags uh, killed the first round as well. They're able to move back twice in the late first round and get uh, some day three capital. And they ended up taking the guy who I think they probably would have taken at 24 and Anton Harrison, the offensive tackle from Oklahoma. And he might have to play sooner rather than later uh, with Cam Robinson's potential suspension looming. And then we've talked about him already, the Steelers. I think they had a great process. Uh, they traded up and avoid, avoided excuse me, missing out on the offensive line run and grabbed Broderick Jones, who I believe was the last of the four uh, kind of top consensus O-linemen. And... Uh, yeah, he was the last one, yeah, taken because you had already had Paris Johnson, Skaronski, and Darnell Wright off the board by that point. Right, right before the uh the Jets too, who definitely would have yeah, taken Exactly. Him. And so they Which is again another Belichick move. Like he trades with a AFC opponent, um, but it screws over a division opponent in the Jets. It was it was just beautiful. It's mastermind yeah. stuff, chess. That, yeah, that was pretty uh pretty good for him and then like we said, they waited for Joey Porter to fall to him at 32, which was the first pick of day two. And uh, they also, the Darnell Washington pick was also in a trade with our Panthers, which they got, uh, we traded 93 and I believe 132 were the picks for pick 80. To move up for DJ Johnson. Right. And yep. so they, they moved down 13 spots in the third and got a fourth round pick, which I thought uh, we might have overpaid on that trade, but uh, they ended up with a good pick and an extra day three pick. And they got Darnell Washington, who was a guy that I think all of us were a bit higher on. Oh yeah. I'm not, um, after day one, I wasn't the biggest fan of the Jaguars draft. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the process of all trading down, still getting your guy, especially when you do have a need for tackle with, uh, Taylor Lewan leaving for Kansas city. Like you said, uh, the looming suspension for cam Robinson, um, the Steelers though, I, I am going to wholeheartedly agree with that. I, that's kind of rounds out my top three. Uh, the Steelers just, you, you go up, you get your guy, uh, you avoid the jets taking your tackle that you wanted. Uh, you still get Joey Porter in the second, and then you got a lot of other great pieces, uh, to put around Kenny Pickett and that team. And we were kind of seeing that come together down the stretch last year. So I know the AFC is really stacked, but this is a team that if they stay healthy, uh, Mike Tomlin's going to have them playing well, especially down the stretch. I agree. So I know we've we've talked about team draft processes. Who were a few players that you thought were taken maybe a little bit earlier than they probably should have gone? Uh, well, the first one, I think, uh, was Will McDonald the fourth for me from Iowa State. Uh, I didn't expect him going in the top half of the draft. I know there were a lot of uh, reports following the draft that he was a, a favorite among teams. I believe there was a report that even the Panthers uh, were considering trading back into the first had he made it to the late 20s. Uh, that obviously didn't. Really? Yeah, that was uh, Mike K of the Charlotte Observer reported that. Okay. Uh, shout out Mike K, good source. And uh, 
obviously teams liked him and I'm, I obviously missed on him and I'll have to go back and see uh, what the, what the hype is about there. And uh, I think the big one that shocked everybody was Jameer Gibbs at 12. Uh, I think it was a pick that nobody expected. I know there was talk of him going late first round, but to be in the top 12 picks, I think uh, wasn't something anyone saw coming. And I think what was even more shocking is that in their draft day presser, I believe the next day, or maybe it was that night, the Lions suggested that they would take him at pick six had they not traded back. Brad Holmes did say that. He said, he, he, well, the, what he alluded to was, is that he was uh, the best player they had. Yeah, or like time. they would be comfortable with him at six. But, but yeah, I which mean, is crazy. Listen, I'm an Alabama fan, but I didn't think Jameer Gibbs was that high on a team's board. But it was interesting to see him going that early. And then another guy that uh, went a little bit high for my liking was Kalijah Kansi, the pit. Uh, D tackle and I know he is a draft crush for a lot of people but just looking at his tape I can't get over him losing reps just because he isn't big enough or his arms aren't long enough and I don't know how that's going to translate once he faces NFL offensive lines instead of ACC offensive lines yeah no that's a that's a good point I think with him being paired with Vita Vey mm -hmm. who is a complete space eater in Tampa Bay like that's 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 the Batman and Robin you're looking that for. was his like, dream you want fit. him to develop exactly and like they're they're going to be able to maximize the skill set which he is extremely explosive mm -hmm. and he's not going to be able to get stacked as much with Vita Vey taking two sometimes three blockers but I want to get back to the Gibbs point. And I think if Gibbs had gone, like you said, lines don't move from six, they take him at six. If he went before Bijan in the top 10, I, I'm, I'm very sure analysts would have lost their minds. Um, now, I know the Falcons and Lions, and they've rightly received a lot of criticism over the past week uh, for investing these picks in the running backs. I don't know if this should come as much as a surprise, especially when you look at how they addressed the, the second round. Uh, and how they built their team. And so the Falcons, they draft Bergeron. They can slot him immediately into the interior O-line. Uh, the Lions drafted Laporta, tight end, right after in the second. And so let's let's start looking at where these head coaches come from. And Arthur Smith, OC, coached under Mike Vrabel, who, by the way, played for Bill Belichick and coached under Bill O'Brien. And O'Brien is a Belichick prodigy. The Lions head coach, Dan Campbell, he coached under Sean Payton before getting the Lions gig. Um, Sean Payton uh, didn't really influence him in uh, kind of what I'm going to allude to, but there's another connection there where Ben Johnson was an offensive coach for Matt Patricia in Detroit before joining Dan Campbell's staff. So there's just a lot of Parcells, Belichick, Sean Payton kind of influences in both of these teams. And so this gets to my point about kind of the genealogy is that why are we investing so much in non-premium positions? In 2016, 2017, and 2018, the New England Patriots ran 21 personnel, which is two running backs, one tight end, and two wide receivers on 18% of their plays in 2016, 25% in 17, and 28% in 2018. The year that Gronk retired in 2019, it then fell to 9%. Now, I don't know why a tight end would shift why they changed their 21 personnel as much, but they made the Super Bowl in all three of those years, winning two of them. And yes, I know the immediate thing is, is they have Brady, they have Belichick, but there appears to be a blueprint that the Falcons and Lions are attempting to replicate. 
And I think that's kind of what's being lost here is regardless if we want to talk about position surplus, they're trying to build a specific team image and identity with these picks. For sure. I think uh, coaching connections are often underrated when we talk about team performance and scheme and stuff like that. And to, to see all the, uh, the different Belichick disciples is really uh, interesting there with the 21 personnel. In regards to the Lions, uh, just overall in their draft process, I don't think they really had a vision outside of let's add good players, which in and of itself isn't a bad strategy. Just felt like they weren't taking advantage of uh, contract surplus and player value that other NFL draft teams do and that the draft offers. And I don't think they really took advantage of the extra draft capital that they got, which I believe this is their last year of getting picks in the Stafford deal. And it is. They just didn't really take advantage of it, in my opinion. No, they, they didn't. And I, I think that's how the poor just keep getting all like poor is that bad teams make decisions over and over again that keep them bad and getting good football players without accounting for some of these position surpluses isn't a smart strategy in the NFL because there's 31 other teams and more than likely a lot of them are implementing some of the like cutting edge nuanced things. And so that's where it's just, it makes it very befuddling and confusing to understand, like kind of wrap your mind around like the Texans moving up for Will Anderson and Scruggs, uh, the commanders reaching for a lot of the players uh, in their draft class, the lions passing on some real potential needle movers for guys like, Jameer Gibbs, Jack Campbell, uh, Sam Laporta, and Brian Branch. And those are great guys, but it's just, it, it doesn't make sense. And then the other thing about the Lions, and I know I'm just, I'm, I'm dogging them right now. They moved heaven and hell to move up in the third to select a guy in Broderick Martin that was considered a seventh round pick on consensus boards. Yeah. Seventh round. Yeah, I mean... So that's another point to uh, team boards versus uh, consensus boards. It's a little bit different, I guess, but I agree. The Lions just, uh, they had, I believe, six top 100 picks, and uh, the only premium spot they took, I believe, was Hendon Hooker, who looks like he's going to be Jared Goff's backup for the foreseeable future. I, I'm lower on Hendon Hooker than a lot of people. Maybe he turns out to be their franchise QB, but at least for this year, it's going to be Goff. And then... Yeah. Talking about the Texans, uh, yeah, I think their trade was a bit confusing, or not a bit, a lot confusing uh, to move up from. It was 12 to 3, I guess, technically, was the spot that they jumped, but they gave up all of that capital. And they did end up with uh, the best player in the draft, in my opinion, and Will Anderson, and hopefully their QB of the future in C.J. Stroud. And they still have that first-round pick next year from Cleveland. Uh, so maybe, and this might be the Lions thinking too, Maybe they just thought that they were playing with house money with the extra picks and wanted to make the most of it. But I don't think that's a good process. I think even if you get the extra picks, you should still be trying to do what's best for the team and not giving up a lot of that extra exactly. capital. And then another team uh, that I wasn't very high on their draft was the LA Rams. And they were the opposite end of the Detroit Lions. They gave their first round pick to the Lions, so they didn't have one. Uh, they didn't do much to inspire uh, in their draft after the Steve Avila selection. I like him. Uh, he is a guard, which is a little bit high for a lot of people. I like him. I think he's a good player. Just a little bit. Yeah. And they, they drafted Stetson Bennett on day three. And 
Stetson wasn't a guy that I thought would be drafted at all. Steve Avila, um, it's it's funny because it was it was a little bit of a reach, and like you said, it was for a guard. Um, and this comes a year after McVeigh kind of jokingly said with his first pick being like in the third round, oh, Belichick took Cole Strange. We were thinking about taking him with our pick. Like it's it just becomes ironic that now with the first pick that you have, you're you're reaching for a guard, which is what you're claiming Belichick did the year prior. But um I, I I'm digressing. I'm sure you have uh, a couple more teams to kind of touch on as we're wrapping up. Yeah, McVeigh must still be salty about uh, the Super Bowl they played in. But uh, moving on to the next team, uh, Miami only had four picks, and uh, they only selected premium positions with two of them, one being in the seventh round. And uh, the 49ers, surprisingly to me, didn't take an offensive lineman at all. I think uh, I think in our last draft precursor, the first pick I had them taking was an offensive lineman, which was a guy who ended up going to the Chiefs, and we know they like to maximize uh, late offensive lineman picks. And then you alluded to it earlier. Uh, Washington did seem to take kind of their guys as opposed to what the consensus had, which is something that you and I know all too well from the Ron Rivera era here mm-hmm. in Carolina. I, Rivera is is stuck in 1985 mm-hmm. sometimes. Like, I get it. I get it. The Bears, you won your ring, blah, blah, blah. But you, you just got to sometimes realize, and he, he did in Carolina with his fourth down decision making with Cam. Mm-hmm evolve but there there are just so many other things where it's just still very archaic there um up to this point we've covered mock drafts a little bit about big boards overall recap of the 2023 nfl draft going through the draft process you'll hear teams say they only have a first round grade on about 15 to 20 prospects each year why is that the case when you have 32 first round picks yeah it's uh this is another topic that always seems to pop up every year and it's the same, uh, the same people that always kind of argue, well, we should have 32 first-round grades or 31, I guess, in this case this year. But uh, first-round grades, in my opinion, are given out to players that you can make the argument would be a first-round pick in most drafts, uh, specifically like most recent drafts. The way I kind of like to think of it is a player that I would give a first-round grade or a round-one grade would, uh, would be a first-rounder in the previous two drafts and this current draft. And the truth is a lot of those players that go 20 to 32 or 15 to 31 or whatever wouldn't be on people's radars in round one if we uh, kind of combine the last few draft classes. Or you could even do it with like last year's class, this year's and the future. I know a lot of teams do it that way. And uh, some of those players wouldn't be first round picks if we were able to combine all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I, I think accounting for previous years um adds a little bit more value at different positions just so that like, for instance, Jackson Smith and Jigbo was the number one wide receiver in this, this class. And it was kind of a poor class, but when you look at the past two drafts or you look at next year, you have more value at that position that kind of then account for. And that's why it's good to kind of see consensus board rankings across years. You see the conglomeration of those to kind of get an idea of would this guy typically go in the first round? Because like you said, those picks 20 to 32, you, you tend to reach for a guy. Right. Now, and uh, if I can butt in real oh, quick, I think it also helps it. teams from getting too eager on a guy that uh, might be there like 20 to 24 or something like that. Like we're, we were saying uh, JSN this year, if we stack him against the last few classes, I mean, Marvin Harrison Jr. just blows him out of the water, right? And that's uh, as a prospect. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He looks like he is. He's the next guy. So you got to kind of temper 
your uh, not your belief in a, a player, but kind of the way you grade them and rank them uh, across multiple years as to not get too eager to take them early. I think we saw that this year with a lot of people saying that he might get taken 9, 10, 11, and he ended up at 20th. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a the great point. Now, when we're talking about these first round grades, are these reserved for only like what you would call like a blue chip prospect guys that you're projected to be stars at the next level or our first round grades also include guys that we think are going to be just good starters? The way I look at it is I have early and mid first round grades and uh, early first round grades should be a guy that starts day one and uh, is going to be average to above average and contribute to team success in a positive way. Uh, and you would hope that they would contend for the Rookie of the Year awards. Uh, the mid-first-round grade is going to be a guy that you would hope would start day one, but might might take a little bit into the year and still contribute to the team in a positive way. Maybe not as much as, say, the number one overall pick should, but should still be a good force in helping you get wins. No, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. I know we are past the coverage when we were talking about consensus boards earlier, but I think it fits in well with our assessment of reaches and steals is that team boards will look completely different from media boards. Um, and so when we're looking at these grades or how we're going to evaluate, okay, who's a first round, uh, we can take like a Will McDonald, for instance. He played a lot of three, four tech in college, but if you line him up nine wide, he he is so much more valuable he's so much more explosive and so that's where it's like if if you run a base three four defense he's going to be more impactful than if you run a four three and you need an end that has his hand in the ground and so it's it's different things like that that are going to change boards change grading systems because you have to realize teams understand their personnel and they're trying to add and improve it as they go along throughout the draft right so iowa state for example where will mcdonald played they might have just been trying to win games right so they're like hey let's take our best defensive lineman and plug him here at a three tech or four I or something. And so uh, he can exactly. rush the passer where, where in reality he has probably the best bend of any edge rusher in this draft. So he was going to be a guy that's more valuable at that wide nine, like you said, or at that outside linebacker more spot. More Ben than Nolan Smith. Oh yeah. I, I know, I know he's up there. You I, Wow. Well, okay. Here's the thing. I okay. think with uh, McDonald's length combined with that, I think he has, cause Nolan okay. Smith's a lot faster, yeah. but I think, uh, McDonald has a better ability to get like underneath those offensive linemen and uh, get into the backfield and create havoc. He had a bunch of strip sacks at uh, I don't remember the correct number, but he had a ton of strip sacks at Iowa State, which playing especially at D tackle was really good for him. And I got to agree with you. Uh, I think another example or in, in regards to team big boards versus consensus uh, big boards, I think the big difference is information discrepancy. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. teams have all the medical information about these players that we don't have or that the media doesn't have. And they also have exactly yeah, they have like the uh, they do all these character and psychological evaluations and tests like that. And they have that information available, whereas independent evaluators and the media, they are, I guess we because I guess I'm an independent evaluator. We just have the tape and, and well, that can be the, the kind thing of is. 
the teams are about to hand out a multi-million dollar contract to these players. They'll they'll hire private investigators to follow these guys when they they visit them, and they're really serious about these guys because they want to know the ins and outs. Like they they want to know every detail possible because they do not want to make a mistake. Right. Uh, I know. Uh, there's an example this year when the Panthers picked up Bryce Young from the airport for his top 30 visit. I uh, this was in I think uh, Albert Breer's uh, column comes out every week i think um the area scout that picked him up recorded whether he smiled and said thank you uh to the guy who drove him back and stuff like that and like you said they just have guys following these uh these young men around and trying to see what like how they interact with people every day and whether they'd be a good fit for the culture culture is another big thing i know we just talk about uh their like their play and their tape but culture is an extremely important thing for teams as they're looking mm-hmm. to build uh, contenders. And uh, an ex- another example, like you said, Will McDonald, I think uh, Mozzie Smith was an example of somebody who was lower on the consensus boards than where he was selected. I think uh, a team like the Cowboys, they probably had him super high on their board. I mean, they like their athletic defenders up front. And he was, like we alluded to, he was the number one uh athletic freak on the freaks list going into this season and uh i actually think mozzie smith was one of my favorite uh kind of team fit picks in the first round this year i mean he's gonna make things a lot easier for their linebackers and for uh micah parsons i think demarcus lawrence micah parsons and now mozzie smith like the cowboys and eagles man their defensive lines are some of the scariest in the league right now and i just I, I would not want to see them on my schedule, uh, especially with my quarterback being a, a Bryce Young, a guy that's under six foot, 200 pounds. But uh, not to get lost in all this draft recap and coverage, Lamar Jackson got paid shortly before the draft got underway. Um, Jason Fitzgerald kind of alluded to on his podcast when Lamar requested a trade that it usually is just leverage that the player kind of uses. Um, before re-signing with the team. And sure enough, he locks in a $260 million deal over five years with $185 million of that fully guaranteed. That man got paid. I'm happy he get, he deserves it, first of all. And I'm happy he got paid. And I'm even happier that the Ravens decided to show confidence in him and get him a weapon early in the draft in Zay Flowers, who I think we both uh, had as probably our favorite receiver in the draft. And uh, mm-hmm. hopefully Flowers, uh, Odell Beckham, who's another new receiver for him and uh, their new offensive coordinator, uh, Todd Munkin from Georgia will allow the Ravens offense to blossom in ways, especially in the passing game that it wasn't able to under Greg Roman's run heavy scheme. I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Todd Munkin's um, NFL experience. He just, he's had a couple intriguing uh, schemes, uh, whether he was down in Tampa Bay, I think he was with Cleveland prior. Uh, it's it's one of those things where you start looking at uh, how is how is he performing overall? And he's usually had like a bottom half offense. So I'm, I'm curious now when you have Lamar, when you have Odell, when you have Bateman, you have Zay Flowers, you're building this team around kind of your mantra. And side note, Ted Monken, 15 combined years of experience of being a wide receiver coach at the collegiate and professional level, 
level. There's no way if Greg Roman's in the building, Odell signed. Oh, yeah. And you wonder if even Zay Flowers is even drafted. So it's nice to see that their philosophy is changing, that they are doing the best to kind of surround their new offensive coordinator with kind of the pieces that fit kind of his mold and his brand uh, as as they're kind of moving forward. I agree. I'm, uh, I'm excited to see how their passing game takes off in the AFC gauntlet. Oh, it's it's going to be a gauntlet. And so while this wraps it up for about this episode, we covered um, consensus boards, first round grades, uh, the thoughts on the NFL draft. Um, and just because the draft is over, we aren't. And that's where I kind of want to lead into is that we have two more episodes left in this mini series. We're going to discuss the AFC and the NFC and the state of both of those. We're going to talk about the AFC next week. And then the week after, we'll talk to you about the NFC. But uh, for both of us on the Pick Is In, uh, we are done for now.